0: Hey everybody, this is Ari in the air, welcome back to the podcast, I hope you're here. Today I've got an exciting talk with my new friend A.J. Bond. A.J. is a shame educator, has recently written a book all about shame, it's called Discomfortable. And this is actually a really profound and very insightful conversation I have with him, in which I uncovered some foundational errors I've been making in my own mindfulness my own management of my emotions for years and we uncover this order of operations that is so incredibly important and so helpful that i urge you to listen that's all i'll say about this episode aj is a very thoughtful person who has a great message so if you'd like this podcast and this kind of shit is helpful for your life, please consider supporting me in making it. That is on patreon.com slash in the air. You can do it for as little as $5 a month, and I give my top-tier patrons free coaching calls. So, without further ado, here's a little bit of music and my talk with my new friend, A.J. Bond. Thank you for being here with me. Thanks for having me. I, on this podcast, explicitly do not do interviews. But this one might be kind of an interview because I want what you have. (laughs) You are a self-proclaimed shame educator, and I'm so curious about that. I have on so many occasions, especially recently identified shame as the emotion that is most detrimental to my own development, my own expression. Mm. It is just so incredibly powerful and it is like, um, it's like, as far as I can tell, it is like the lowest human emotion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Even fear is rising up out of shame. And this is, I don't know if you're familiar with David R Hawkins, but he does a calibrated level of consciousness and he has shame as the lowest human emotion. So Mm. I really I'm super grateful that you're here and I'm really excited to hear this. I would love to start with dazzle me with the basics. Tell me, (laughs) yeah, dazzle me with the basics. All right. I'm sure you did this in the intro of your new book, Discomfortable. And I would love to hear what shame is, why we need to put a keen flashlight of awareness on it in our lives.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, let's start with some definitions then. I like to I like to explore shame as a spectrum. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when I'm in disagreements with people about shame it's it comes down to a semantic level. Mm-hmm. So let's just start off for me I think of shame as an emotion and it's the sensation of unpleasantness that refers to ourselves. So you you brought up fear for example and I think of fear as an unpleasant sensation that refers to something that we perceive as external to us. Mm-hmm. Like there's a bear charging mm-hmm. at us. Okay, my body creates fear. Yeah. And I, you know, it creates a hyper-awareness of what's happening around me and how I can change it or avoid it. Mm-hmm. And with shame, that hyper-awareness goes inward, mm-hmm. but also is connected to the social world, which we'll discuss a bit more in a second. So you become hyper-aware of yourself especially in a social context, in relation to other people. What is happening with me? And what are people thinking of me? And what do I need to hide or change about me in order to gain social safety? Mm -hmm. So it's like looking for a kind of internal threat that needs to be managed somehow. Mm -hmm. And so that spectrum can contain many different sensations that we label differently, all the way from shyness, blushing just like self-consciousness into things like guilt, shame, embarrassment, humiliation, mortification, and even like a sense of deep exile or suicidal ideation Mm. at the extreme. So that to me is the spectrum Mm. of shame. And then I'm particularly drawn to um, the way affect theory looks at shame which is a theory of emotion created by Sylvan Tompkins. But I learned about it primarily from Donald Nathanson's book, Shame and Pride. This like epic, very rigorous kind of clinical book. Um, And one of the ways that they define shame, they have many ways of looking at it, but one of the ways we could start with is that it's important to recognize that there are two components to shame. One is what they call shame affect, which is just the feeling of unpleasantness in your body. Mm-hmm. But then all of our shame has a story attached, like a, 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 an interpretation, mm-hmm. a belief, or a set of interpretations and beliefs related to what that unpleasant feeling in our body means to us. So it's important to know that everything on the shame spectrum in theory is just different levels of that sensation with different thoughts attached to them Mm -hmm. like oh i think this is guilt because i agree with it and Mm -hmm. it kind of matches my values no Mm -hmm. i think this though is shame because it feels like it's referring to my whole person Mm -hmm. and it's kind of like externally referenced like i am bad so that's like that's a distinction that people often make between shame and guilt guilt being i made a mistake Shame meaning I am a mistake, Mm. but I would argue that both of those interpretations probably have some amount of shame affect involved Mm. that due to the circumstances we are interpreting slightly differently. So it's important to 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 think that, like, there is a space in our cognitive realm where we can kind of reframe this feeling and come to a healthier interpretation of it. Wow.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's beautiful. And I think that the definition here is so critically important. And I like that you've kind of opened it up into a spectrum as opposed to like, where did we cross the threshold into shame? I have kind of described or tried to understand shame as a, like you kind of mentioned there, guilt is a negative feeling based on something I did Mm-hmm. And shame is a negative feeling for something that I am.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: so that's kind of how I've been uh, playing with it for a while.
1: Yeah. And, and my mentors at the Center for Healing Shame would say that rather than calling it guilt and shame, they would look at the guilt version, that interpretation of shame affect as healthy, healthy shame. Okay. You know, you feel a bad feeling because there was a mistake. And you want to fix that mistake and learn from it. Yeah. It's healthy. It's unpleasant, but it's healthy. Whereas the other version they call toxic shame, or you might call it like maladaptive shame. It's like, I feel this unpleasant sensation and I interpret myself as ruined. And what do I, what am I going to do with that? There's not a lot of adaptivity to it. It's sort of like, well, I guess I have to hide this or Mm -hmm. no one will love me.
0: Yeah. That's so interesting and i've heard and i've i think i've also used this what you're describing myself this this idea of healthy shame this idea of how oh, that hurts what does this mean i'm disappointed in myself because i would i would have wished that i had done better there um this like in some kind of you know to put it in nonviolent communication it's like what is your inner educator trying to tell you mm-hmm. here? And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm actually feeling disappointment because I would, I, I wished I would have done better there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, please continue. I want to z- zoom in on one part of shame first, which is like developmental, like how did we get this? Why now that I'm 32 years old and I'm like, oh, there's that feeling. I'm like, oh, that's a very familiar feeling. Where did that come from? When did I start that?
1: Hmm. Yeah. Great question. So in affect theory, it's believed that we have shame affect, the feeling portion of shame from birth. And there's some debate about, you know, when do we develop Mm. shame and do you need a sense of self to think I am bad? Yeah, you probably need a sense of self to think I am bad. So somewhere between two and three, the cognitive component of shame starts to, you know, mature Uh and the feeling takes on an interpretation. And that interpretation, it's worth noting that our brain is at that point in life, literally wiring itself to the world and to the social world. So the interpretation that our really young child self makes about this unpleasant feeling can stick in our brain for the rest of our lives. Wow. And so developmental trauma, and a lot of people believe that shame is a form of developmental trauma or vice versa is when we experience as a child, some deeply shaming incident that our brain kind of wires itself around. And this is almost certainly something interpersonal with our caregivers. As a child, I think we are wired with this expectation that we will have connection and that our needs will be met through that connection. Yes. So anytime as a young child, where there is a really profound sense of disconnection with our caregivers or anyone really important to us or a a really profound moment where our needs aren't met or a series of these moments, Uh you know, it doesn't have to be one big trauma. It can be kind of consistent, small shamings in certain ways with our caregivers where our needs are consistently not quite met or where disconnection is consistently happening that our brain starts to create a story about what this means And a lot of people believe that as a child, we can't really comprehend when interpersonal problems are not our own fault. Mm -hmm. It's so hard to imagine that our parents or our caregivers who seem like gods, like we're literally like, okay, these, this is reality. These Mm -hmm. are the people, the real people living in the real reality. So whatever they're doing must be normal. Mm -hmm. And so our brain finds it easier when our needs aren't being met, or there's disconnection to interpret it as it's my fault. Mm -hmm. And that gets wired into our brain. And also, if you think about it, it's probably safer for us to interpret it that way. Because as a very young child, what are we going to do if our parents are at fault. Like how are we going to correct them? Mm -hmm. It's almost easier to blame ourselves and try all of these corrective um, behaviors to try to do the best we can to make it work Mm -hmm. because without our parents, it feels like, and it's sort of true, or at least it was when we were hunter gatherers, we will die without them. Mm -hmm. So we kind of like internalize this sense of blame around certain issues and internalize this, story about what it means when shame comes up. And then that gets wired in and that haunts us literally for the rest of our lives. Mm. And of course, you know, as adults, we anytime we experience disconnection, we are also likely to feel shame. Mm -hmm. But developmental trauma shame is going to kind of skew our view of reality. Mm -hmm. So if I have abandonment issues that led to kind of a lot of shame as a child, I'm kind of constantly vigilant for signs of abandonment. And if you do the slightest kind of not paying attention to me, that might trigger that old shame and trauma. And suddenly this reality package comes online in my brain. I'm being abandoned again. I'm worthless. Ari doesn't like me. You know, all of that stuff comes up from the past. So there's like present moment shame and there's present moment triggers, but a lot of the shame that we consider really toxic, is from when we were developing our brain. Does that make sense?
0: Uh, too much sense. Yeah. If you could just back out of my head just a little bit, would
1: be a lot more comfortable. Out of everybody's heads. Yeah, pretty much, right? Yeah. If we could
0: just back out of my head just a little bit there. Um, Wow. Yeah. I As you say it, I feel it. I hear it in my life. I can draw the parallel to that readily. And I also find myself living in a situation next door to my best friends. They have two children next door to my other best friends. They have two children, my other best friends, two children. Wow. That sounds lovely. It's, it's incredible. It's fucking paradise here. And they are all just amazing parents who are very conscious and uh who do things a bit differently and the example that comes up which i have some desire to not talk about is (laughs) (laughs) pp goes in the potty (laughs) okay pp goes in the potty okay it is around here it is not an issue uh, or it's not to be talked about potty training is not to be talked about as mistakes it is not to be talked about as character or why did you do that or you did it wrong it is just every time just guiding the reality back to pee pee goes in the potty
1: that's mm. it it's not yeah. right or
0: wrong it just is that just is isness that is just reality Um, which is, seems like a step forward for me as I, as far as I can tell, um, Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So much shame around excrement in childhood.
0: Crazy. Right. Like I carry it around. I like, I have like worked through as an adult, like just like being able to piss and shit like a human being outside or like just Mm -hmm. like it's crazy to think that that is at stake when you're telling your child how to be a person in the house it's like it's there's so much at stake there and you know i've basically my gateway into philosophy was peaceful parenting so the idea that the way we potty train our children shapes our body image and creates a shame loop around our humanness is like that's fucking real man that is real and terrifying um
1: donald nathanson actually suggests that the reason we find the smell of feces so disgusting is because of shame Because it's the thing we are the most shamed about the earliest. Whoa. And it's not that he's saying it's a pleasant, like that we would be like, I love the smell of this. But that the the disgust that it brings up is actually more cultural and conditioned than than innate. That's just a theory. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense.
0: It's, on that note, it seems to be functional, right? Even if that comes culturally, there's um, sanitation and life expectancy are correlated. Um, So that's interesting. The other connection here that comes up for me is... The way Marshall Rosenberg describes this is essentially that you, the voices of your caregivers become your inner educator.
1: Mm.
0: And there is some... there's something that can shift here with the voice of your caregiver, becoming your inner educator that can, slip into inner critic right and so i'm curious the geometry between inner critic and shame because there's this like it's almost like a loop it's almost like a broken record it's just like your inner critic is just like the stick is shame all the time, right? Like it uses shame as it's like mechanism for input. And, you know, some of the work that I've been trying to do with myself is when I have that inner critic come up that I can take the shame stick away from it and try to steel man it and, interpret it as what is my actual inner educator trying to teach me here? What is it afraid of? What is it trying to guide me away from? Um, So I'm curious, what's the geometry between inner critic and shame?
1: I think you're absolutely right that the inner critic is fueled by shame. And that the inner critic can take on, different voices in in different circumstances, often a parent or a boss or a friend even, a teacher. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I noticed that my inner critic in certain situations is specific people's voices. Mm. And I imagine that it's bringing up shame from the past, from a similar situation related to feeling shamed by that person and believing them and sort of internalizing, okay, this is true. And then that that somewhere in my brain is a connection between the shame of a certain kind of stimulus and me believing that this criticism is true and actually like wanting to remind myself to be criticized in that way so as to not do that thing. But then as we get older and we mature, we start to see through some of those criticisms. So then we get into a situation where the situation still triggers that old shame. Mm -hmm. And then it automatically triggers that inner critic voice. But then we have our prefrontal cortex saying, no, I disagree. So then we get into an argument, a wrestle with -hmm. our inner critic. But the problem is we don't really get to decide when our conditioning comes online and and we can't just tell our conditioning to go away. Mm -hmm. It's like an extraordinarily gradual process to move away from my conditioning. So ironically, it actually, in my experience, requires me to accept, of course, this kind of situation is going to keep bringing up shame because I was basically conditioned that way. And of course, it's going to bring up this old inner critic voice that was so powerful And convincing at one point, Mm -hmm. that's all in my conditioning. I have to just accept this, and understand it, feel the pain of it till it passes, and then say, "Thanks, but I'm going to do something else." Uh Because to wrestle with it actually is adding more unpleasantness. It's actually, arguably, shaming your shame. Uh I shouldn't be thinking this. Uh huh. And what should I not be thinking? The thought that I shouldn't be like this Uh so it's just another kind of shame on top of a shame yeah Yeah, it's just another layer so you've got a part shaming a part shaming a part and you're gonna want to try to accept it all and let it pass and then use your most kind of conscious prefrontal cortex self to say okay but what do i actually want to do now yeah that's what comes up for me Mm. does that make sense
0: yeah Yeah, it's to to kind of bring it back to that inner educator that becomes inner critic.
1: And then you decide is this is this education that I want to lean into or not? Mm-hmm. And if you do want to lean into it, great. Yeah. It's like, thanks. Ouch, but thanks. Okay. I see the lesson here. I can fix this or I can learn from this.
0: Yeah. But the solution is not an inner critic critic.
1: But then you have to use your self-awareness to say, is this an inner critic voice that I can just get rid of or not? Because if not, then you're going to need to just give that inner critic voice a lot of compassion and acceptance. Mm -hmm. Like, Oh wow. That's wow. AJ. Well, there's something, there's a part in you that really cares about this. Okay. Yeah, we can, we can, we can handle that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very insightful that the idea that shaming your shame is just like another layer of the whole problem. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's very, 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 very common with the kinds of people that I talk to who are very smart. So they've reached this stage where they don't believe a lot of their shame. And it's very easy to get caught into a rejection state of shame, which uh-huh. is essentially shaming your shame. And it actually makes things worse. It, it really does. So it's like accepting the shame without believing it, without acting uh-huh. on it or identifying with it. Mm-hmm. That's the real skill, I think.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's a mindfulness. It's a psychological mindfulness.
1: Yeah. Deep self awareness is necessary to spot it. Uh huh. And to see why it's saying that. What's the backstory here? Uh huh. And then to decide, do I agree?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And not stepping into the arena with it, you know, not trying to immediately change it. Say, I shouldn't be thinking this. I shouldn't be feeling this. Why am I doing this? Yeah. yeah.
1: I think there's a space for logic. It's very important Uh to, to have, um, an argument with that belief, but not with the feeling. So this is where shame Mm -hmm. affect versus cognitive shame comes in handy as a definition. It's like, okay, what we really want to do is note that I have never succeeded in telling an emotion to go away in the moment that I'm feeling it. So shame, affect, the best strategy for me is acceptance to the feeling. And then the message, it's like, okay, how, how, like, how old is this message? Is this message from early childhood? The
0: story, the meaning, the event, the trigger, the, yeah.
1: Yeah. So those are like, yeah, exactly. They're different things. And some messages are so deep and old that I'm sort of like, okay, I'm in a deep acceptance space that this message will keep returning And that's okay. Mm. But some new messages are sort of like, yeah, new and like, anytime I feel shame, there's a message for me that I'm bad. That's just the conditioned response to shame in me. Uh, So that's a message that's, I'm always going to see and be like, Hey, yeah, of course it feels like I'm bad right now. That's like a,
0: that's like a, that's the feeling you get from the feeling of shame. So you feel that shame affect in your gut or in your stomach or wherever you're feeling that. yeah. And then your head comes online and is like, if you're feeling shame, you fucked up or you are a fuck up.
1: Yes, exactly. But sometimes I'm like, okay, I feel this. I'm accepting this emotion. Ouch. Uh Just, you know what? To start with, I just focus on the body sensation. Mm -hmm. That's the one part that is the most immediate And the most Mm non-negotiable we're in it. So I'm just in acceptance. I want to feel it and I want to express it. I feel like emotions pass the most quickly when they're accepted, felt and expressed. So that means like might mean talking about it might mean sobbing about it might mean getting angry, like whatever feels like it needs to be expressed without, but that's like, I carve out a, a difference here between acting on it, expressing it through some kind of words or emotional reaction that doesn't like hit other people Uh that's just expression to me and it's super healthy yep and it helps the emotion be like thank you i feel heard you got my message peace out see you next time
0: Yep, and i also want to just like add here that expression like you mentioned is not acting on the emotion And is also not necessarily talking about it because sometimes talking about it is like too far removed from the animal nature in which the emotion arises because the emotion will arise in your body and your body is not your cognitive head. And so sometimes the most helpful way to express anger is to, for me, splitting firewood. Yes, it is yes fucking angry smacking heavy piece of metal against wood until it explodes until it gives or like we have these these exercise balls that are like these balls full of sand and you just like lift this 20 pound ball over your head and you just fucking scream and you slam it on the ground there's like a part of my body that needs to process this emotion yeah then my head is like you know i feel like our in our current culture we kind of like talk therapy has like almost gotten too big it's like top heavy like this yeah like the processing of our emotions is like top heavy it's like super heady yeah we're like we have to realize like so much like that creates a shadow in our bodies because our bodies actually feel the emotion and the body wants to do something with the emotion yes so when it's anger it's like like your body wants to enact something angry and Likely violent or fleeing. You know, it's like the explanation from Andrew Huberman as to why EMDR works as therapy is because we have evolved to have a flight response. And so when we run away from something, our peripheral vision goes back and forth, moving our eyes left and right. And that embodied fleeing is cathartic for us. Yeah. And has created that pathway in our eyes. So when we enact with our eyes fleeing, it's helpful. So um, I just wanted to add that, that expressing, and I totally love what you're saying here, that the accepting the emotion first and then expressing is, as you said, the fastest way to... You know, that's this is greasing the tracks. This is okay. Get out of the way here. Let it, let it go through.
1: Yeah, that's what I agree with everything you're saying. And that's exactly what an emotion wants. It's not, it's like, it's an incentive to say that's the fastest way, but it's more than that. An emotion needs to be felt and expressed. Uh-huh. And if you don't feel and express it, it does seem to linger. So in a sense, you have this lingering background shame yeah. that's just accruing. And there's something unhealthy about that.
0: Yes.
1: So it's like, we need to find an embodied way to let it out. Yeah. And yeah, for me, when anger comes up, I have these boxes and I just like destroy the boxes, which is really satisfying to like punch and destroy. Like it really gets destroyed. Uh-huh. So it's similar to like destroying wood or like screaming into a pillow or punching, punching some couch cushions or something. Um, but for me, shame often brings up anger, uh, sorry, sobbing, which is, which is also like you can't talk your way out of sobbing. It's, that, doesn't, that doesn't give your body the catharsis and tension release that sobbing provides. So if I feel shame come up, I will often try to find some private space in the moment if I can and just like let my body feel it and cry if it needs to and just let it out. Yes. And, and, and as you said, like I focus entirely on the body. It's like, I try not to think too much about it until the emotion is out. Uh-huh. Because I find that if I let my thinking take over, it will almost certainly try to logically tell me and my shame why I shouldn't have to feel it. Uh-huh. So my brain, my prefrontal cortex just defaults to, we don't need to feel this, this is bullshit. Um, this, this shame is old and unreal and wrong. And like, that's all kind of true, but it doesn't, it does me no good in actually feeling it.
0: Yeah.
1: So once I felt it and it's passed, there's almost always this moment where I have like a clearing breath that comes on and other people have different reactions. Like your stomach might start to gurgle or it's like, there's some sense in your body that like a transition is happening
0: uh-huh.
1: for me. It's like, uh, and that's when I know, okay. I'm leaving the somatic phase of shame. And now I can go up to my cognitive intellectual area and say, "Okay, what are the messages coming up? What are where is this coming from from the past? Do I agree with this? Is this logical? And if I don't agree with it and it's not logical, it does help to have that argument to really go through it and get a kind of defined Hmm. stance. So for me, like I, I, I'm gay, I have gay shame that keeps coming up all the time. And I've been through it, I've looked at it, I've argued with it cognitively. So I know exactly what it's about and why it's there. And so once now, once I feel through it, I'm just like, oh yeah, gay shame. I know why it's there, goodbye. Like, I don't even need to have that argument mm-hmm. anymore. It's just like, feel it, let it pass and we're done here. Mm. But some shame comes up and I'm still kind of, blended with it, as they say in internal family systems, like I still kind of identify this is me. So then there's work to be done. Like, okay, wait, am I actually bad? Am I wrong here? You know, and then there's some argument and thinking to happen so that you can have a stance on this chain. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Yes. I love this idea. There's a, I, I feel like what you just laid out is essentially an order of operations here. hmm Mm -hmm. and this is so important i think what you just described as i heard it was that as the shame or the emotion at all comes up yes if we because it comes up first in our bodies that's how we know it's there yeah that's a feeling it's an emotion that's how we know it's there is because we feel it we don't think it we don't think an emotion I have a thought that I'm having an emotion. That's not an emotion. An emotion arises in our bodies. So as AJ is describing it, the first step is to feel the emotion, to actually get the cognitive processing out of the way. As Benita Roy describes this part of ourselves, it's the gatekeeper self that is our ego. So our ego can get in the way and say, wait, no, this emotion's bullshit. Yeah. We're not feeling this shit. We don't yeah. deserve this. We totally deserve better than this. Yes. Yes. We don't we don't deserve to feel this shame.
1: We didn't I didn't do anything wrong. There's I didn't do wrong anything wrong with being wrong. gay. There's nothing <laughs> wrong. <laughs>
0: it's almost funny. It's almost funny if it wasn't so real. Yeah. Um and so the gatekeeper self gets in the way and it stops the fucking shipment of emotion that wants to cross the border. Yes. And it just wants to have a clear passage. Just let me have safe passage. I'm not going to fucking I'm not going to live here long. I'm not going to set up shop. No,
1: I'm not going to set up shop. It will only set up shop if you listen to your gatekeeper and don't feel it.
0: Yeah. It's like the gatekeepers, the border guard and the border guard stops the emotion from moving through your body. And so what it does is it stops right there in your psyche. And what does it have to do? Well, now it just has to live next to its truck on the side of the road next to the border.
1: And actually it, it is, that is a very powerful position for an emotion because I think that the emotions that live on the border are essentially still active. So they are like, the next time you encounter that situation, that emotion will light up and have all of its power and kind of like, how to describe it. It will continue to feel true. Yeah. I think Doug Tatarin, who does the bioemotive work, says something like, "An emotion that you don't feel becomes an identity." And I think that's exactly true. It's like if I don't let that shame go through, it lingers and feels true. Mm. Like I actually think shame doesn't want us to feel it. That's the most powerful position it can hold.
0: Ah, hmm. That's interesting. I love this little order of operations because it's so clear. First, you feel it. Second, you look at it. Yeah. First, you feel it. Second, you look at it.
1: It's so much easier to look at when you're not feeling it, too.
0: God, that's so much better. First, you feel it. Second, you look at it. Yeah. Keep yeah. the keep the border guard, the gatekeeper self, a.k.a. the ego and the psyche out of the way so that your body can actually let the thing go through. Yeah. Because we yeah. so quickly want to jump in and say, we don't deserve this. We didn't do anything wrong. This is not us. This is blah, blah, blah. And that's actually just adding shame to the shame. Instead of just yeah. greasing the tracks and being like, oh, shame's coming through.
1: Yeah. And... Don't forget that is extremely unpleasant. It's it's, what we're describing. is not easy. It is the hardest part of the whole process Mm. to sit in this pain and say, okay, this is okay Mm. because your body's going to feel unsafe. Can I handle this? Does this define me? Will this ever end? That's the other big one. It feels like this feeling will never end sometimes, but it will feelings. All emotions are temporary. If you feel them.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Hmm. And I think I'm quoting you via Peter when I say that what you shame stays the same.
1: No, that's Peter. That's just Peter. Oh, that is. Okay. Yeah. I can't take credit for that though. I love it.
0: Okay. I want to double click on that because the idea that, you know, that we're, that i love this little order of operations that's so important feel it first dissect it second yeah let the feeling be the feeling which is i also really appreciate that you emphasize that just because we are willing to feel this isn't going to make it less painful It's not not (laughs) going to make it more comfortable. (laughs) No,
1: it does make it more manageable. You very, like, okay, I also want to note that at certain levels of shame, I can't even do this. Certain levels of shame, I just get blown over and I get caught in rumination (sighs) and I'm thinking (sighs) it through. And I kind of like live in shame purgatory for a number of hours where my brain is re-stimulating the shame by ruminating on it and... Eventually of its own accord, it starts to lessen. And then I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm not accepting it. I'm I'm all up in my head. I'm fighting it. And then I have to like find a way into acceptance. Mm. So like I really recommend and sort of note that this is something that's easiest at really low levels of shame. And you just build up your tolerance, like going to the gym. Like start to feel little bits of shame when like a stranger accidentally bums into you on the sidewalk. I feel that shame and accept it. And gradually your tolerance for feeling and accepting shame will grow. But there's certain amplitudes of emotion that will just bowl us over. And then you are on a slightly different journey.
0: Okay, let's double click on that journey.
1: So when I get bowled over by shame, I will probably go into my threat response or some kind of classic defensive pattern from my childhood. Mm -hmm. Um, Donald Nathanson has this concept of the compass of shame, which he sees as the four most common reactions to shame. And it's essentially our threat response system plus um, attacking yourself, that inner critic and denial, which is sort of a cognitive variation on our flight response where we go inward and, Pretend like we're not feeling shame. This isn't happening. uh, Dissociate maybe, or even rebel against it. Like keep Mm -hmm. doing the behavior in order to pretend like we have no shame. And the other points on the compass are literal withdrawal, like just running away and attacking other, which is our fight response coming online.
0: What are the four there again? Just the, the four directions? There's
1: attack self. Uh and attack other, which are kind of like one latitude on the compass. Got it. So someone's going to get attacked. It's either me or them. And it's usually correlated around who we're perceiving as at fault for the shame. Mm -hmm. Are they shaming me? Then I might go into attack them. Is the shame like I'm, it's my fault, then attack myself. And then the other like longitude line, or I might have that backwards, is um, literal withdrawal and then denial a cognitive form of withdrawal Uh, okay so attack self attack other withdraw avoid love it go and then it's also worth noting that shame itself is a freeze state so that can be a reaction it's very common to freeze which is also in our threat response and that can include confusion dissociation numbness blankness like any of that stuff Uh like if, if you suddenly lose your train of thought you might investigate and discover that there was some shame that came up that just threw everything out the window because it wanted to stop you from pursuing that line of thought because Mm -hmm. it thought it would lead to social danger. Um, So those are the most common reactions. So if I get bowled over by shame, I will probably go into one of those reactions. And for me, it's usually people pleasing, which I plot on the compass of shame as a sort of mixture of attack, self and denial. Hmm. So I pretend like I'm not in shame. I'm blaming myself. And the safest move feels like just make sure everyone is happy except for me. Just go along with it, smile and great, like ingratiate myself, you know, throw authenticity out the window and just try to maintain connection at all costs. That's almost certainly what I will go into. And then it's like in those situations, it's just I'm relying on having tried to memorize what it feels like when I'm triggered in order to at some point reach a consciousness level where I can notice it. Like triggering is so powerful that it kind of just takes over all your brain and you just get invested in your defensive strategy, people-pleasing. But it usually has a very signature body feeling of pounding heart, constricted throat. For me, often like a hot face, I want to cry feeling. And some people feel a lot of energy in their arms and legs. That's like fight, flight. So it's really important to try to memorize that. And even memorize the feeling of shame for you, which which is probably an unpleasant feeling somewhere between your gut, chest, throat, and face. So it's through remembering, oh, shit, this is what it feels like to be triggered. I'm triggered. Oh, I'm in people pleasing. Is there a real threat around? No. Okay, it was probably shame that caused Mm -hmm. this trigger that caused me to go into this defensive strategy. So then I try to not make any important decisions. And I just try to wait for my trigger to end. It's sort of like a similar thing to accepting the body experience of shame. I'm accepting that I'm triggered and I'm kind of just putting myself out of commission for like half an hour doing deep breathing Uh, Trying not to ruminate, like using mindfulness to focus Mm -hmm. on something else, Mm -hmm. focus on the present moment, details in the present moment, deep breathing until the trigger has passed. Mm -hmm. Because any decision I make in that point is just completely contaminated by my threat response system. Like my prefrontal cortex is literally offline.
0: It is offline. And the neurology on this estimates that the fastest it can come back online after being triggered, twenty five minutes.
1: That that's exactly my experience. It's like half an. If I'm triggered, it's like okay, the next half an hour. It's right half
0: an hour is best though. That's what yeah. I found is like yeah. If I'm like, if I can like really like get totally onto another t- train of thought, if I can really like move my body and like get my mind doing something totally different, then mm-hmm. half an hour later I'm actually back. But yeah. like th- all. If of you the ruminate, mo- it'll go on. <laughs> Yeah. It's just like, that's just like the clock is still ticking and you're not actually going away from that state.
1: Because our emotional brain, I understand, doesn't really know the difference between fantasy and reality. Mm -hmm. So if you replay the shaming incident over and over again, your brain will just keep stimulating the shame reaction. Mm -hmm. And so that's a really delicate thing to get caught in rumination. And for me, I find it can be helpful to, if I'm triggered, I can talk about it or journal about it. But what I'm talking about in journaling about is the present moment body sensations, not what happened.
0: Uh-huh. Not the story.
1: Not the story, because that will just re-trigger it. Yes. So it's like, what, oh, what is it? and this is useful work anyway, because it will help you memorize that sensation so that in the future you'll be able to recognize it more quickly. Uh-huh. And the other thing that comes online when I get bowled over by shame is like this metaphor that I'm lost at sea. And I'm like desperately swimming, trying to find some kind of like dry land to cling to. Mm -hmm. And the first strategy is that that dry land will come from another human because that's like I have anxious attachment. I'm like go towards people. And what I'm really needing is to find myself in that ocean, the 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 dry land that is me. Mm. So I oh, I realize I'm triggered oh, I realize I want to be people-pleasing or I currently am people-pleasing. Okay, how do I reorient and actually find my inner sovereignty, like my inner sense of self-love, my inner sense of, AJ, I love you no matter what you did. Even if this shame is caused by a horrible mistake that is all your fault, I love you, I will not abandon you. Hmm. I want to find that part, which is a part that you might not immediately, you might not be like, that's a journey to find that part, even when you're not in shame. Mm -hmm. So there's like a journey to go on to have this sense of self-love that you can find when you're really bowled over by shame. And when I find that it's, everything's going to be okay. But for other people, I might note, like if you are avoidant attachment, if you feel shame and your reflex is to go away and be away from people, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: it might be the opposite. It might be that it will be more advantageous for you to make the courageous step of reaching out for empathy and love from a trusted friend. Mm-hmm. That might be the balance that gets you back in your equilibrium. Mm-hmm. So for me, I'll go all the way into, you know, we space lose all my authenticity. So I want to rebalance it by finding myself love for other people who already have that strong sense of, I meet my own needs, I avoid other humans. They might need to rebalance by going into the we space. So it's sort of something that we kind of, and if you have disorganized attachment, it might, both might feel completely unsafe, mm-hmm. which is a really tricky space to be.
0: Yeah, I like this. This, everything that you're saying essentially hinges on the psychological awareness of exactly your state first right? So the idea that you would memorize the feeling of shame is the, that only happens if you see it yeah, (laughs) and you're willing to put your attention on it and you're willing to feel To feel
1: it. Exactly.
0: Like you can't get familiar with what it feels like to be in a shame response. You can't get familiar with what it feels like to be in a triggered state if you're not willing to admit that you're triggered, admit that you're feeling shame and yeah. feel
1: it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where the, the the word discomfortable comes from for me. It's like this willingness, this this, this acceptance of getting comfortable with discomfort, like mm. being open to it, wanting to explore it, wanting to look at it. Mm. Hmm. Yes. Cause it feels like danger and we naturally want to avoid danger.
0: Yeah. It's interesting how you kind of define shame as almost like, cause I'm a professional athlete and I do dangerous shit for mm-hmm. a living mm-hmm. and just my life. I love it. So fear in that sense is like really like bodily. It's like self-preservation. It's like, don't die what's dangerous and what is going to kill you. And then shame, almost as we've defined it today, is that same existential fear, but instead of a physical death, it's a social death.
1: Yeah. Which it's, is the same as a physical death in terms evolution. of evolution. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Evolutionary psychology would suggest that that's directly connected to physical death. Yeah. because but But it feels worse in arguably... It, you could it feels like not only will i die but i will die sad and alone no shit and frightened and sad and yeah. and cast out and wretched and i might even believe it i will die believing that i am not even worthy of being loved connected and alive which is just like oh it's like That's the worst a, thing
0: you can imagine right it is and what a deep evolution uh, evolutionary story attached to that. Yeah. That's crazy. I, I like there's there's some really just practical bits in here. this order of operations of feeling it first and using your cognitive part of you, to analyze it later. That's a very practical bit. I love that. Also this, if you can let yourself feel it, then you can note that's what it feels like so that you can become more readily aware of it in the future. Also, I really love the practical bit that when you're in a shame response and you are trying to process it, The processing through journaling is not the story. It is processing the feeling itself.
1: I think that's the safest way to not get caught in rumination. And then when you're out of your trigger, then you can journal about the story and just be mindful that you are going to trigger more shame Mm. and that you want to not get caught in rumination. It is important to go through it. And so, okay, I'm going to trigger more shame. I could get caught in rumination. But with that awareness, you'll notice like, oh, oh yeah, I am in rumination. And then you kind of ask yourself like, is there really more to be thought about here? Like, it, mm. Or do I get it? And I chances are you already got it a long time ago.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You already got the main points of it. So you, you actually, the reason you're thinking through it is for safety reasons. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that, There's this big distinction here where you look at shame and you say, am I in danger or am I in discomfort? And if you're not in some kind of immediate physical danger, it's very rare in the modern world that a shaming situation is really that dangerous. We Mm -hmm. always have, when you're in shame, it feels like I need to act on this right now. It's urgent, but actually it's like in the course of our life, we have so much time to try to repair things, to make amends, even if we do screw up. It's like, it's actually not, it's, it doesn't have to happen right this second. So the more that we can honor that, oh, I'm just in discomfort, I'm not in danger. Then it gives us the space to just feel it and explore it and very kind of um, skillfully see when it's no longer useful to be thinking about it. In this moment. Mm-hmm. I sort of trust like often when I'm ruminating about shame, I'm really just guessing well, what does that person think of me, which uh-huh. is not a question I can answer in my own head. No. So it's endless. Yeah. Oh, do they think this about me? Or do they think that or like this? Or, or were they thinking this? So if, for me, it's much better to, to notice that I'm doing that and say, okay, the questions that you should be asking are either only ones you can answer from your firsthand experience because those will be insightful. Why is this triggering me? What does this connect to in the past? What does this mean for me? Those kinds of questions you can answer. And that's insightful. You can learn. And then if you can, ask the person directly, hey, I have this story that when I said that thing about your shirt, that you were really maybe hurt. I just wanted to check, is that true? uh uh-huh and that will give you information that is so much more valid you don't need to ruminate on it.
0: Mm. And also the the first part there where you're asking yourself the
1: questions
0: there's also that question of like what does this feel like itself what is the felt sense of this moment this emotion this shame you know cuz we can't ask ourselves like almost cognitively to start understanding the story itself and pick it apart but it, but also that that what does it feel like grease the tracks help push the train along here so that we can get out of the trigger itself and then come back to the cognitive is this true and if i need more answers i can then ask the person directly but yeah. what you're referring to is the cycle of human bullshit where we're actually not trying to manage how we feel about ourselves. We're not actually trying to manage how other people think of us. We're trying to manage what we think other people think of us, which yes. is like too many Pointless. layers. It's yeah. too many layers of abstraction for us to actually do fuck all about. Yeah. Um. And so... Yeah, like just coming back into the awareness of the moment there that the feeling itself, as opposed to the stories that, just as we just said, layer on themselves three times, four times, five times, this feedback loop of, of this, this thing is so insidious. Yeah.
1: Yeah. If you haven't done the body processing and you're in rumination, then it's like, try to stop all thinking, focus entirely on your body. What does this feel like until it passes?
0: I think this right there, that is the most powerful and most practical thing that I've heard today about this. This is, I think the missing piece. Most people I know who have a decent emotional awareness can do the second part but often and myself included i find that i do the cognitive part first and it actually just sticks me in rumination and i never get out yeah. of it
1: yeah yeah
0: so the order uh, of operations yeah. as as you've said it which is feel the physical somatic sensations of being uncomfortable and having the shame response first and note it and presence it, maybe even journal about it, maybe even write it down, maybe even say it out loud, whatever that is, that being first, and then try to intellectually process it later. That right there is the biggest thing I've taken away from this talk with you and, um, that's super super powerful super helpful i think that's of critical import because i think so many of us in our the culture as it seems to stand right now as far as from where i sit a lot of us can do the connecting the dots a lot of us can do the what does that mean what does it not mean you know like the wisdom that we kind of all have inside of us when we're outside of the trigger can can put it together okay i got triggered for this and i was like oh yeah i remember my mom used to tell me this it's like a lot of us can put it together but so many times my emotion comes up to the border of the ego of the psyche and the ego wants to defend me it wants to protect me and so it says nope this is a bullshit emotion this is a bullshit emotion. You don't deserve to feel this. You didn't do anything wrong. And so it just stops it right there. The fucking truck driver has to get out of his truck. He shits on the ground. Is like he just sets up camp and then he just lives there. And then every other time that the fucking truck, another truck tries to get through with the same emotion, gatekeeper self, ego psyche stops it again. Now we just have all of this blocked up fucking shame. Now we have an encampment. Mm-hmm. There's like all this shame just living there. And it's like. So. The idea that it comes up and now I'm training my psyche. I'm training my border guard now to say, oh, shame. Uh, fast track. You actually, <laughs> uh, you're right lane. There's no fucking nobody in the right lane because there's no border guard there. You go that way. And uh, Ari's going to write about what it feels like to have shame in his stomach. Yeah, Yeah. Go right over there. I love this. This is literally like a practice that we have to. Like you mentioned, it's like lifting weights. This is a practice of us training our border guards differently than than we have. The idea that our border guard is in our best interest, but often maladaptive. The fact that our ego is trying to protect us, it is trying to defend us, it is trying to keep us from feeling the bullshit shame that we don't deserve to feel. And it's likely, you know, right and in alignment with our values so, so often, but that doesn't actually mean that we can get away with not feeling it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And shame might even be greasing the border guard because shame doesn't want to be seen. Shame wants to be hidden. Shame, I think has more power at that border stop accruing. And keeping that part of you in the shadow.
0: Yeah. Keeping it makes part a of you,
1: Yeah. Unaware. Like, I yes. can't, I can't feel this. It's like, if you can't feel shame, it's in, it has a lot of power over you. Uh-huh. It's like, I'm going to make you feel me. And if you can say, yeah, okay, bring it on. I'll feel you and I won't believe you and I won't act on you. Yeah. That's when you have the power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And going to the gym is a good analogy because at the gym, you're getting discomfortable with physical pain. You're saying, yeah, hey, body, I know this feels like dangerous, but it's not. It's actually healthy. I know. Trust me. We're getting an injection. Trust me on this one, body. It feels like danger. It's not. And we want to kind of normalize shame in the same way. Mm. Unless there's a physical threat present, I can just feel this or try to.
0: Yep. I love it. That's super helpful this conversation has been very insightful and, um, it seems that you and I are quite similar in our psychological conditioning. And as you just talk about how you respond with people pleasing, um, I'm like, uh, AJ, please back out of my head once again. (laughs) So, um, yeah, that's super helpful. And I am hopeful that this conversation, this online artifact that we have now created is helpful for people and I know it will be. And I also am glad that you wrote a book and that that's a artifact that people can use too. This is a topic that has not been, um, it's relatively, it's popular, but it's also kind of fresh. Yeah. And it's like, um, so I'd also be curious what other, I would love to hear from you like this, uh, maybe give us a closing encouragement, how you encourage people to deal with this, as well as some additional resources that people can use to help learn about shame, how to deal with it. Uh,
1: those kinds of things. Yeah. Okay. Some, some additional encouragement. I really encourage you to talk about shame and, or any topic that is veiled in shame in your brain, because that really helps to prove to your system that nothing bad happens when you reveal shame Mm -hmm. to other people. And so kind of find something that's at your edge, that's in your growth zone and share it with a trusted friend. Mm And the more you talk about it, the more it just depowers the shame. Like mm-hmm. there's things that I thought I could never tell anyone. And now it's just like, oh, yeah, sure. I can tell We can talk about that. Like, it's just by talking about it with a trusted friend who can react with like a sense of acceptance or validation or even empathy. Like, oh, yeah, I kind of have that just immediately is like, oh, yeah, that's not so bad. <laughs> well, uh, what were you talking about, shame? So like any time you can talk about it is in any way, is a huge act of empowerment. Uh, talk about envy. Talk about judgment when it comes up. Talk about jealousy. You know. Talk about sexuality. All these things that are kind of often enshrouded in shame, and you're just depowering that. And then in terms of resources, like this process that I'm describing of getting discomfortable with the present moment feeling of shame is just like a great go-to process. Mm-hmm. But it's not really necessarily going to I mean I think actually very gradually it will help you slowly lessen those old triggers but I think also like going to a helping professional and directly looking at the triggers that are from the past and accurately assigning where the responsibility lies which if you're a child at the time is almost certainly not you. So it's basically like gradually teaching our brain that thought it was safest and most logical to assume this is my fault to really deeply rewrite and rewire that belief so that it's starting to honor. That was something that did not meet my needs as a child. And that was beyond my responsibility. So it's like not trying to get too much into like the blame space, but just really reorienting your body to know that that was not something that was your responsibility at the time. That's very powerful. And sometimes it requires healthy anger Mm -hmm. to come up. And sometimes it does feel really important to direct it at the caregiver and say, I need to get angry and have some degree of assigning responsibility Mm -hmm. in order to prove to my body that that the wrongdoing was not mine Mm
0: -hmm. yes
1: so that kind of work deeper work you can do with a helping professional and i'm trained by the center for healing shame they have a program where they uh, certify helping professionals as shame healers Mm -hmm. so you can go to check them out and they've lists of therapists and helping professionals of different sorts, you know, some are licensed, some are somatic experiencing practitioners, like I'm just a coach, for example. And we've all have some specialty in shame. And so you can kind of find people in your area that specialize in that. And that can be really powerful as well. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, you can check out my book for for kind of more top level slash my experience. But like if you really want to dig in deep, I totally recommend Shame and Pride by Donald Nathanson. Like that's mm-hmm. like quite dense and clinical, but if that interests you, like go for it. And then, like, kind of anything really that explores this topic. Like, I'm a big fan of Brene Brown's work. Yeah. It's it's very feel good, but anybody that gets you thinking about shame, I think mm-hmm. is valuable. So um, I just encourage you to, to start thinking and talking about it as a first step, and then see in what small areas you can. Feel the feeling, accept it and let it pass Mm. and just build up that tolerance.
0: Love it. Grease attracts. Yeah. Thanks so much, AJ.
1: Thank you. Thanks for
0: having me. Great meeting you. Yeah. Thank you. See you. Okay, you guys. I hope that nugget was as helpful for you as it's been for me. Check out AJ's work. I have the links in the description below as well as his book is out. It's very cool. Thanks, AJ, for coming on. If you like this show, consider supporting it on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash air for as little as $5 a month. Or you could be a top-tier patron and get free coaching calls with me where I distill all the wisdom from my best guests and then we sift through it together trying to find the nuggets of wisdom that we need for our lives. Thanks so much. See you on the next episode.